Hi guys. Welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. My name is Harry, and I'm your host. Today, we're covering Operation Barbarossa from September 5th to the 19th. Today's an extremely important episode, maybe the most important since we began the series. So, without any further ado, let's get going. In the north, last episode saw a renewed German advance slice into Soviet defenses. By September 4th, only a narrow corridor connected Landgrad to the rest of the USSR. On September 7th, a combined force from the 12th Panzer and 20th Motorized Divisions smashed the last resistance holding that corridor open. On September 8th, the 20th Motorized Division captured Schlüsselburg, essentially sealing the ring around Leningrad. As such, September 8th is typically marked as the beginning of the Siege of Leningrad, when the USSR's second largest city came under direct and prolonged assault. The city was not completely cut off and it was still possible to transport supplies via waterway, but this was a dangerous route, and it was impossible to supply a city of 2.5 million people plus remaining soldiers through this method. Also dangerous was the prospect that German forces, having achieved the encirclement, would turn east and destroy many of the major ports or railroads that allowed this transport. In the immediate future, however, Soviet strength directly east of Schlüsselburg could hold off German forces, but this could change. Following the achievement of the encirclement at Leningrad, it seems that German and Soviet forces differed sharply. The mood among German commanders was triumphant. As early as September 5th, Halder's diary entry read, quote, Leningrad. Our objective has been achieved, will now become a subsidiary theater of operations. Unquote. Halder believed that remaining Soviet resistance, deprived of supplies, would rot away. Even before that, he thought, starvation among civilians would force a surrender. Hitler was clearly of much the same opinion. On September 6th, he issued Fuhrer Directive 35. With regards to Army Group North, this called for the securing of the perimeter of the Leningrad encirclement with infantry so that the armored and motorized forces could be reassigned for the attack on Moscow, codenamed Operation Typhoon. In the Leningrad area, limited offensive operations would be undertaken in cooperation with Finnish forces to shore up the situation. Extensive airstrikes would then help cripple the city's defenders, hopefully bringing the siege to a quick end. Once an encirclement had been formed or cemented, Von Lee planned to capture the southern and eastern shores of Lake Labdaga. This would deny the Red Army railheads near the lake, critical for supplying the city. Von Lee's job was made far more difficult because Führer Directive 35 only left him the 39th Panzer Corps as an armored force. Wanting to strike before most of his armored forces left, attacks by the 41st and 38th Army Corps began on September 9th, targeting the western side. In response, Soviet resistance nearly buckled. Much of the Red Army's strength in the region were made up of Leningrad People's Militias divisions. As their name suggests, these were hastily formed, poorly trained, and poorly armed. An attack by the German 36th Motorized Division against the 3rd Leningrad People's Militia Division forced it back 10 kilometers. Further losses were only avoided by a heavy artillery barrage that forced the 36th to withdraw. The 42nd Army and 3rd Landgrad People's Militia Division were ordered to counterattack on September 10th, but against Panzer Divisions, the Red Army had to withdraw. Both sides threw in their last reserves, hoping to force a decisive conclusion. At the same time, Stalin was making major changes to the Landgrad front. 
Zhukov was made commander over Voroshilov, who had proven himself incompetent. Zhukov was apparently much more optimistic about Landgrad than Stalin was, believing that it could be held and that a viable defense could still be maintained. By the time Zhukov had arrived at Landgrad, or at least situated near Landgrad, and had gotten set up, the situation was dire. Ground had been lost on every side, and most of the ramshackle defenses had been abandoned. Zhukov reorganized his limited forces and instituted a policy of unflinching resistance, the violation of which would be met with execution. Whether motivated by fear or patriotism, and likely some mix of both, Soviet troops fought like rats in a trap with the walls closing in. German troops restarted their attack in earnest on the 13th of September, and they slowly forced back Soviet units, many of which were close to disintegration. If Zhukov had not managed to scrape together reinforcements for the 42nd Army, it likely would have been shattered and destroyed utterly. He planned a counterattack for the 15th, but was preempted by German assaults. To go into the exact minutia of every attack and counterattack would probably bore even my most loyal listeners, but the time from the 15th up to the 19th is taken up by ferocious but inconclusive fighting, as increasingly weak German attacks become more and more impotent while Soviet forces barely cling on, surviving mostly on willpower rather than any solid military basis. Only a few miles from the city proper, firefights raged in and around factories and suburbs. Civilians were frequently caught in the crossfire as they built defenses and served as couriers and nurses and other subsidiary jobs. Probably as concerning as the military situation was the morale, particularly of Landgrad civilians. To the average observer, there seemed little prospect of holding the city, while starvation, aerial bombardment, and artillery strikes seemed certain. The mood among many Landgraders was grim, and this had the potential to affect soldiers. Stalin blamed German agents for creating a grim mood, but Landgraders needed little encouragement to be pessimistic. Zhukov instituted a harsh regime. Soldiers caught retreating without an explicit order were to be summarily executed. Stalin thought this didn't go far enough and demanded that in dealing with civilians, Zhukov, quote, beat the Germans and their creatures, whoever they are, in every way, and abuse the enemy. It makes no difference whether they are willing or unwilling enemies. Show no mercy either to the German scoundrels or to their accomplices, whomever they are, unquote. And these were not empty words. The central sector was relatively quiet, so we won't spend much time here. One thing I do want to look at is the Yelna offensive. Yelna, about 80 kilometers southeast of Smolensk, had been taken by Panzer Group II back in July. Zhukov thought to take it back and put its full weight behind organizing offensives to this end. The most well-coordinated of these offensives began August 30th. So we're going to go back just a little. The Soviet assault was mainly conducted by General Rakuten's 24th Army, recently reinforced with increasingly precious tank divisions. Against stout resistance from the equivalent of five German infantry divisions, Soviet forces carved their way through enemy lines, and by September 4th had deeply enveloped German forces, threatening to encircle and destroy them. Reluctantly, German commanders ordered the evacuation of the Yelna salient and Yelna itself was retaken on September 6th. 
Raccoon forces then pursued the Germans 25 kilometers to the west. By September 8th, however, they had run into prepared German defenses and had to stop. This, combined with the growing crisis in Ukraine, as we'll get to and spend most of our time on, Zhukov ordered a halt to, to the Yelma offensive on September 10th, as well as other attacks along the western and reserve fronts. The significance of the Yelna offensive is debated. David Glantz cites it as representative of the Red Army's capacity for victory, and not minor victories, even at this early stage. And Yelna did mark the first recapture of significant Soviet territory that was not quickly then reversed. But on a technical level, Robert Forzik considers Yelna a Pyrrhic victory at best. He argues that Soviet success at Yelna was shallow, based on brute force more than finesse, and weakened Soviet forces just weeks prior to a massive German offensive. Basically, it wasn't worth the cost. It would have been better to simply batten down the hatches and gather these forces in preparation for uh, defense against Moscow. We're going to spend most of our time in the south, and you'll see why. Last episode, Guderian's panzers had pushed their way south against Aramanko's crumbling ground front. At the same time, Army Group South had seized several crossings over the Dnieper. Much of the Stavka could see that the southwestern front was in grave danger of complete encirclement, but Stalin insisted that the Germans didn't have the strength for such a maneuver and that their focus wasn't even on Ukraine. As this episode begins, Guderian's forces continue their advance southwards, slowly but persistently. Morale and basic organization begins to break down on Aramanko's front. On September 5th, he requests and receives permission to establish blocking attachments to prevent panic troops from fleeing without permission. These blocking attachments, often made of NKVD troops, would stop troops retreating, check if they were doing so without permission, and take appropriate measures, which could even mean uh, summary execution of those troops deemed to be uh, fleeing without orders. This was rather rare, at least compared to uh, its depiction in movies like Enemy at the Gates, but it was still a sign that the Soviet situation was really desperate. Despite all this, the situation continued to devolve, and on September 7th, Boris Shaposhnikov and Alexander Vasilevsky, head and deputy head of the Stavka respectively, worked up the courage to confront Stalin and plead for withdrawal in Ukraine. This was not any sort of rash decision. After all, Shaposhnikov only had his job because Zhukov had been demoted after arguing with Stalin on the same issue. Stalin was angered by this, accusing the pair of preferring to retreat rather than fight. But he did grant permission to withdraw the 5th and 37th armies a ways back to better defensible positions. But this did not resolve the fundamental strategic disadvantage that the Southwestern Front had. All it did was lessen the smaller-scale tactical problems. On the German side, Friedrich 35, as we said, issued on September 6th, ordered a double pincer attack in the south. The armored and motorized forces of Armored Group South would strike from the bridgehead at Kremenchuk, and Guderian's panzers would move south to meet them. This was to begin no later than September 10th. On September 8th, the 3rd and 4th Panzer Divisions under Guderian crossed the Sain River, and the city of Kolmatov was captured on the 9th. On the 10th, elements of the 24th Panzer Corps seized the initiative and captured the town of Romney. These operations were conducted on a shoestring, with barely enough gasoline, ammunition, and men. 
But against an enemy even worse off, that is to say, the Red Army, this was allowable. Soviet counterattacks were strenuous, especially considering their sorry state, but could not help the German advance. By this point, just glancing at a map would make it clear that German forces were attempting an encirclement of nearly the whole of the Southwestern Front. On the 10th, Kirponos, uh, commander of the Southwestern Front, called for a general withdrawal, and even Semyon Budeni, one of Stalin's most obstinate stooges, signaled his agreement. In response, Stalin reassigned Budeni and categorically forbade Kirponos to withdraw. Timoshenko, thought to be militarily competent and, more importantly, sufficiently compliant, took Budeni's position. While Guderian had achieved his objectives on time, Army Group South had not yet begun their part of the offensive. Poor weather and supply problems delayed it to the 12th. And before it could begin, fierce Soviet assaults on the 10th and 11th threatened to destroy von Kleist's bridgehead. While failing to do this, it did force the Germans back. Even still, the German offensive began on September 12th and caught the Soviet forces by surprise and quickly broke out. Von Kleist's forces were under massive time pressure. The delay in their attack meant that Guderian's troops were overstretched and vulnerable to Soviet counterattack. To make up for lost time, desperate measures were needed. The 16th Panzer Division, which led the attack, was short on fuel. But rather than stopping and waiting for a resupply, they decided to drive their tanks until the gas tanks were bone dry and the engines refused to start. Up north, Guderian's attacks continued, crossing the Sula River on September 13th. Two seemingly contradictory things began to take place on Kiriponis' front. In the pocket newly forming, many soldiers panicked as their situation turned dire. But in the space between the two German pincers, resistance, Soviet resistance, became fanatical. And not just by soldiers. Reports were shared around of women and children taking up arms against the Germans. But all this fanaticism was little good against tanks and Guderian and von Kleist's panthers pressed on. The situation was incredibly dire. Because of Stalin's repeated refusal to allow withdrawal, the vast majority of German forces in the pocket, as the situation deteriorated, things grew grimmer and grimmer. Because of Stalin's repeated refusal to allow withdrawal, the large majority of Soviet forces in the pocket, barely held open by this point, had no prospect of resupply or of making it out. Unlike at Smolensk, there were no massive Soviet reserves that could quickly be deployed to hold the pocket, and any breakout attempt meant a retreat of up to 200 kilometers and a battle against the best the Germans had. And yet, Stalin still refused to allow withdrawal. At this point, this was beyond irrationality and strayed into desperation and a denial of the inevitable, a complete refusal to acknowledge what was staring him in the face. Finally, around 6 p.m. on September 14th, elements of the 3rd and 16th Panzer Divisions met up around the town of Lubny, closing what would become known as the Kiev Pocket. Inside were the 5th, 21st, 26th, 37th, and 38th Armies, along with much of the 30th Army. Some 41 divisions in all, making up at least 450,000 men. This was, and still is, the largest encirclement in military history and could not have been accomplished without Stalin's utter ineptitude. German troops and commanders were befuddled by the, and I quote, 
incomprehensible manner, the Russian has left his troops to remain in a situation in the Ukraine which must result in their capture, unquote. They could only chalk it up to incompetence, and for once, German intelligence was not too far off. Kirponis was living his worst nightmare. He had been telling Stalin for weeks what was going to happen and had been denied and refused and mocked at every turn. Now he was trapped alongside his troops. What could be done for the Southwestern Front? Very little. His troops were starved of supplies and weapons, likely working at about one-third of their regulation strength. Almost comically, Stalin still had not given permission for a breakout. Kirponis' official task was to keep the pocket intact until the Red Army could organize an attack to relieve the embattled Southwestern Front. This was fantasy. The pocket quickly began to collapse. This was in part due to Soviet withdrawal. Kirponis did not receive permission officially to conduct a withdrawal from Kiev until September 17th, and even that was vague and could be read as potentially not actually getting permission. But the pocket was melting away, orders or no orders. Seeing the futility of their situation, whole units were attempting to break out or simply to flee without any written or oral instructions to do so. Those that reached the German ring simply bounced off like billiard balls. Nor were German forces just sitting there. Fearful of large breakouts or partisans such as at Smolensk or Minsk, the pocket was actively reduced. Communications broke down between command and the remnants of the front. Kirponis's last order was for all surviving units to attack eastward and attempt a breakout. The next few days were not a battle, but a desperate escape and a largely unsuccessful escape. Many troops in the pocket fought tooth and nail even against what they would call impossible odds. Their ferocity stunned and terrified their victorious enemy. One diary entry from a German soldier who witnessed this described it as such. Whether they come in with tanks or whether the infantry comes in without support, the end is always the same. They are driven back with such losses that one wonders how they can find the courage and the men to keep coming on. Do they have any feelings of fear? Despite all this, there was no lack of prisoners for the troops at Kiev. The Wehrmacht had cast a wide net and they were reaping the benefits. In under a week, the 24th Panzer Corps alone took 31,000 prisoners. Just on September 19th, von Kleist Panzers took 12,000 prisoners. This was just a small sample of what was to come. The activity in the air was not significantly better for the Soviets. Around Leningrad, desperate battles raged as Luftwaffe forces attempted to level the city from above. The night of September 8th, German bombers launched their first major raids on the now-encircled Leningrad. 27 Jagu-88 medium bombers dropped incendiary bombs, lighting over 180 fires and destroying the entirety of Leningrad's sugar supply, over 2 million kilograms. Even this small comfort would be denied to the besieged city. A second wave of bombers hit the city four hours later. However, even at this point, the Luftwaffe could not act with impunity. The city had heavy anti-aircraft defenses, and newly transferred Soviet fighters meant that German bombing raids were limited to night. Most of Luftwaffe's focus was still directed towards breaking tenacious Soviet defenders. 
when a renewed German offensive aimed to reduce the encirclement and began on September 11th, almost 500 sorties were flown on the first day by German planes. The air combat was raised to an even higher pitch, something many had thought impossible. As the battle raged, exhausted German units had to be redeployed and refitted for the upcoming battle against Moscow. Even this didn't necessarily grant a reprieve, and many units moved from Leningrad still found themselves quite busy intercepting Soviet bomber raids. On the Soviet side, this stiffening resistance was obviously positive, but it was too little. Soviet losses remained much higher than their German counterparts, and aircraft production was absolutely inadequate to sustain such losses. In Ukraine, the air war raged around both the bridgeheads over the Dnieper and Guderian's drive to the south. In the combat over the bridgeheads, pilots and planes from Axis allies like uh, Slovakia, Romania, and Italy continued to be vital, with German fighter units exhausted. Once Guderian and von Kleist began their push to link up and cut off the southwestern front, all air combat shifted to the spearheads of this offensive. Stalin personally intervened to transfer 90% of VVS southwestern front strength to counter Guderian's armored push. On September 12th, combat in the sector claimed one of the first female Soviet pilots. Yekaterina Zelenko had served with distinction in the Winter War and was made deputy commander of a bomber unit. Serving in the Ukraine, her plane fell under attack by seven German BF-109s. Her gunner managed to kill one, but was then killed himself, and the bomber was hit and set ablaze. Yekaterina grimly decided to ram her bomber into one of the German pursuers. Shrapnel from the collision killed her. It was only in 1990 that Mikhail Gorbachev posthumously awarded her the title Hero of the Soviet Union. As German strength overwhelmed the Red Air Force in Ukraine, the remaining Soviet airmen were reduced to hit-and-run attacks against Luftwaffe sorties. As the encirclement around the southwestern front was sealed and Stalin gave orders for the troops to resist at all costs, the VVS in Ukraine bled itself dry. Like on the ground, Luftwaffe pilots were shocked by the willingness of Soviet flyers to attack large German formations time and time again flying outdated machines with low-quality weapons. As before, bravery and fanaticism was not enough. As German armored forces redeployed to prepare for the attack on Moscow, airstrikes served as the main fist of the German cordon around Kiev, pummeling Soviet remnants relentlessly. The heavy losses the Luftwaffe had sustained, alongside the massive strain put on what remained, pushed many units to the breaking point. For instance, most of Flieger Corps 5 was grounded for a lack of fuel, and those planes that could get off the ground were used until they simply broke down. As on the ground, activity in the center of the front was relatively quiet. Large-scale offensives came to an end by mid-September, and both sides busied themselves marshalling their forces for the approaching battle. I want to speak briefly on British Lend-Lease to the USSR, as well as Anglo-Soviet cooperation. As early as July 25th, Britain had earmarked 200 Curtis P-40 Tomahawks, a type of fighter plane, for delivery to the USSR. In these last days of July, Britain and the USSR cooperated in the Arctic. British planes, launched from the aircraft carriers HMS Victorious and HMS Furious, attempted to attack the supply lines to Eduard 
Diesel's mountain troops at the same time as the Soviet attack was underway. Diesel is an interesting figure. He's often been compared to Rommel, both in his own time and ours, uh, due to his skill and his popularity with his troops. And he was the first German soldier to be given the Oakleaves Cluster on his Iron Cross, which is an addition to what is already the highest award in the German army at the time. He was also an incredibly ardent Nazi, going so far to describe Scandinavian women as, and I quote, racial flotsam. Hitler, Hitler eventually had to intervene to restrain him, hoping to avoid bad PR. In any case, this particular Anglo-Soviet effort failed and marked an embarrassing start to the partnership. But British material support proved more important, although still just a drop in the bucket at this point. At the end of August, a British convoy arrived at Murmansk with 40 Hawker Hurricane fighters as well as RAF pilots and mechanics. Contrary to many British accounts, Soviet pilots were generally unimpressed with hurricanes. And perhaps this is a matter of expectations. Uh, Spitfires, a uh, sort of next-generation fighter, a uh, successor to the Hawker Hurricane, had taken the spotlight during the Battle of Britain, and Stalin had requested shipments of these. But the British barely had enough for themselves. Though, on the other hand, some pilots who have flown both Hurricanes and what was at the time the standard-issued Soviet I-16 preferred at least some aspects of the Soviet machine. So perhaps there were more mechanical reasons. These newly arrived British planes and crews were put in the service protecting Murmansk, what was currently the only land route for Lend-Lease, at least until the opening of the Iranian route. Like I said, this was a drop in the bucket, but it was a significant symbolic gesture that did help change the local balance of power around Murmansk. And there were also deliveries of things like tanks and radio equipment, and tanks especially would become a bigger deal because British Lendley's tanks would come to represent a considerable supply of medium and heavy armor at a time when those were crucially running short. But this was not enough for Stalin, and can't really blame him for feeling that way. He felt that the USSR was taking nearly the full weight of Axis power, and he was right. The North African Front, which was really the only major place where uh, other place aside from the Eastern Front where German forces were being drawn off. The uh, North African Front was very small by comparison, and Stalin had been calling for Churchill to open up a second front in Europe. As much as we may sympathize with Stalin's beleaguered state, this idea of a kind of a in late summer, early fall 1941 of Britain opening up a second front on the European mainland, it was impracticable and unrealistic. Britain lacked the men and the weaponry for this. Stalin, at one point, in an act of what I consider desperation, even proposed that Churchill send 25 British divisions to the USSR to fight on the Eastern Front. This was not workable, either logistically, practically, uh, in a command sense, or politically. There was sometimes an argument made that Britain and to some extent both the Western Al or all the Western allies deliberately did not open a second front in Europe so that the USSR would be uh, bled dry by the German attacks and thus weakened in a post-war settlement. Perhaps there's a case to be made for this when it comes to the later years of the war, 
1941, however, there was no prospect of Britain being able to make a major landing in Europe and hold it. So that seems to be, that argument in this case seems to be just a case of uh, resentment. Anyway, thanks for indulging me. In the final analysis, there's no way to sugarcoat the events of this episode for the Soviets, and I almost feel like I'm being dishonest to even try and be balanced, whatever that means, but I'll do my best. The disaster at Kiev was absolutely earth-shattering and potentially the single largest disaster so far in the war. A whole front was destroyed, even greater in scale than the calamity at Minsk had been. Worse, Kiev was not only a disaster, but one that Stalin had ample time and guidance to avert and simply did not. The stage was now very nearly set for Operation Typhoon. German commanders hoped that this, Operation Typhoon, would mark the death blow for the Red Army and the Soviet state as a whole. As this final battle, or at least prospective final battle, approaches, I think it would do us good to see what shape the two armies are in for the climax. The German military was in rough shape. This is not to deny the victories of the Wehrmacht, or more specifically the Ostheer, that is the German army in the east. That is not to deny the victories they've won so far, nor what is the relatively better off state of German units compared to their Soviet peers. Uh, we'll, we'll look at the Soviet state in just a moment. But anyway, German armored and motorized forces, the spearhead of any offensive, were not doing well. Worst off with Guderian's Panzer Group II, which had experienced months of heavy fighting in Army Group Center, and then was pivoted to create the Kiev encirclement. Three months of constant action had exhausted it. Worst off with the 3rd Panzer Division. On September 14th, only 20% of its tanks were combat ready. The three other Panzer divisions under Guderian averaged between 25 and 30% combat readiness. It's true that the other Panzer groups were in relatively better shape, but probably none had more than 50% of its tanks operational, and losses had been heaviest amongst the more modern tanks. Moreover, on that point, Panzer Group II was both the largest Panzer Group by absolute number, and it had, at least at the beginning, uh, the most modern tanks. Like I said, that is uh, Panzer III's and Panzer IV. So, kind of the impact uh, on the losses here, or the impact of the losses, was extremely severe in Panzer Group II. To add some nuance, many, if not most, of the out-of-action tanks were damaged rather than destroyed, but because of the German repair process, this was effectively the same thing within our time frame. Uh, the German repair process was highly centralized, and German tanks were very, very complex machines. And all this meant that major repairs could pretty much only be done uh, back at the factory in Germany. Um, this process would take weeks or even months, and it essentially meant that any tank that wasn't uh, ready for action by late September would not be ready for action uh, at the start of Operation Typhoon. Knowing all of this, or at least enough of this, German commanders begged Hitler for more tanks, as they had been doing for weeks. Hitler had believed that victory in the East was inevitable, so providing reinforcements would be a waste. 
He preferred to save both what few uncommitted armored units remained as well as uh, save factory production for further campaigns in North Africa or Asia Minor or anything he could think of. By September, though, it had been clear, become clear that the USSR wasn't about to immediately collapse, and reluctantly, Hitler released 300 tanks from factory production to the Ostheer. In addition, he allowed the 2nd and 5th Panzer Divisions to be transferred to Panzer Group 4. These two divisions had taken part in the invasions of Greece and Yugoslavia, but were unready or unable to take part in the initial invasion of the USSR. The 2nd Panzer Division in particular suffered heavily when a ship transporting part of the division was sunk in transport. All these transfers probably amounted to 700 tanks, which would make up for a major part of the losses that the German Panzer forces had suffered. There was also a major problem with the motorized vehicles. Exact statistics are not clear for this, but by mid-September, Panzer Group II had lost 30 to 40 percent of its wheeled transport. This affected both the motorized infantry and the logistics for the military, weakening them severely. The situation was better for other pans groups, but still critical. The motorized forces had long grown dependent on captured Soviet trucks to sustain them, and there were even firefights between the requisition units of Panzer Group II and the 8th Army Corps over possession of these captured trucks. Um, unlike with tanks, German truck reinforcements could only replace a small percentage of losses. This was primarily an industrial problem, not a matter of withholding from higher-ups like with tanks. When Hitler released those 700-odd tanks, he also granted about 3,500 trucks. This was about what German industry could uh, spare. And even if we were to assume an extremely conservative loss rate for German forces in the East, that 3,500 trucks probably replaced 3% of losses, and that's being extremely generous. Losses in men are more difficult to estimate. It's easier to keep track of a few thousand tanks and 3 million men, and looking at official loss records typically doesn't tell you about uh, sick soldiers or wounded soldiers who have returned. In any case, by September 20th, official records show total losses of about 500,000 men, about one-sixth of the starting force. And these casualties were not distributed equally. The spearhead armor and motorized forces accounted for about 25% of casualties, which was disproportionately high. Within this, most of those losses were among the motorized infantry rather than the panzer forces, but the panzer forces that motorized infantry were very vulnerable, so it's not really something you can throw away and say, well, the panzer forces are fine. Replacements were coming, but not nearly quick enough to replace losses. Army Group North reported that replacements only equaled about a third of casualties. In writing this, and in my conclusions for this, I don't want to underestimate Soviet strength on the eve of Operation Typhoon. It has been a popular narrative, or at least as popular as any narrative can be in such a niche topic, to disparage Germany's strength before Operation Typhoon as if the Wehrmacht was broken, or there was no prospect for success. This is not true, or at least not in my estimation. Certainly the Wehrmacht, especially the Panzer forces, were badly bruised, but it remained an incredibly powerful force, and we also have to take into account the condition of Soviet forces. So we'll turn to that. 
By late September, total Soviet losses since the war began numbered about 2.5 million, equal to about 80% of all the Soviet forces positioned in the border districts at the outbreak of war. Soviet losses in tanks were comparable. Of maybe 20,000 pre-war, the Red Army had lost 15,000 by late September. What remained had been divided up into small tank divisions and brigades, distributed among armies rather than concentrated into large units. Now, this did have a justification, and good reasons behind it. The Stavka recognized that the Red Army lacked enough skilled tank commanders to effectively operate large armored formations like the Mechanized Corps. Moreover, the Mechanized Corps in particular had proven themselves weighty and unwieldy and inefficient. It was hoped that these smaller armored units would be more easily commanded and thus more effective. But there was a problem with this. The lack of a large armored unit like a Panzer Corps or a Panzer Group severely limited the ability to mass tank forces and achieve decisive breakthroughs. Rather, the use of smaller tank units and their distribution might aid in defensive operations, but it made offensives far more difficult. And it made it particularly far more difficult to achieve uh, deep breakthroughs that were the kind of uh, attacks that would create major victories. Unfortunately for the Red Army, they could also expect their tank production to decrease at least in the coming month or two, as many of the major factories were packed onto trains and sent east. This particularly applied to T-34 medium tanks and KV heavy tanks, which had proven the most effective. The situation could and would somewhat be bettered by restarting and increasing light tank production, but this would largely have to be worked around. For the Soviet infantry, they were still relying upon their vast reserves, millions strong, to fill their ranks. And on paper, this may seem like an unbeatable resource, but in reality, it has major problems. These reservists frequently were not of prime military age and or had to be retrained, a process which, while expedited, still took significant time. It was also made harder by the need to create entirely new divisions and armies to replace those annihilated in huge encirclements. It's much easier to send a uh, reinforcements to a division that already has a core of established leadership and experience and to create entirely new divisions of people who've never known each other, have never worked together, never trained together, never fought together, and are unfamiliar with where they're about to be deployed to. In addition, these new divisions often lacked heavy equipment, like artillery or tanks, etc., and of course had no combat experience. One thing I think is important to consider is that although on paper the Soviet military was still over twice as large as German forces in the east, when you account for Soviet troops away from the front and or those in training or still mobilizing, frontline German and Soviet strengths uh, kind of in late September directly prior to Operation Typhoon are comparable. And um, when you factor in German superiority in equipment and combat experience, the odds are, in many ways, especially in the Central Front, tilted towards the, the Germans. Uh, true, if you look at numbers, uh, the Wehrmacht, or the Ostheer in particular, has decreased in size since the outbreak of Barbarossa, while the Red Army, the Soviet military, has increased in size. But like we just said, there are qualitative differences here, and as well, not every troop is actually on the front. So I would argue that these uh, differences, uh, kind of German numbers decreasing and Soviet numbers increasing, are more reflective of potential in the future 
than current fighting strength. Operation Typhoon would be Germany's last thrust of 1941. This was their do-or-die moment. The weather is turning bitterly cold, and winter will make operations drastically harder. The Germans are operating at the end of their logistical rope, a rope that has already been severely overstretched. The Soviets are marshalling their forces, and it's Germany's last chance to knock out the USSR in one decisive blow. The Red Army was to either hold or fall. All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening, and I'll try and uh, keep up the pace with these episodes. Uh, as always, my name is Harry. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, uh, and I'm also actually taking suggestions, this podcast is, this particular series, uh, the main events have maybe five episodes left, I'd say, and then I also do a lot of uh, some bonus episodes for particular topics or units or something that I haven't been able to cover in as much detail about Barbarossa that you would like me to cover. So if you have suggestions for that, send me those. Or if you have suggestions for future podcast ideas on this kind of uh, vein. Uh, that email you can contact me at is apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That is apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Uh, otherwise, I will speak to you later, and hope you have a good week. Bye, guys.